Well, it's good to see everybody at all of our Atlanta area campuses. Those of you who are joining us online, those of you who are joining us online from all over the world, it's kind of cool who joins us online. And before I jump into the message, I just have to brag for just a second. I'm so, so grateful for all of our volunteers and for those of you who get here early and stay late at our different services. Uh, yesterday, Sandra was out shopping and she ran into what she described as this really cute girl in her late mid to late 20s. And, um, and when she got it, she was checking out at, at a place where she was shopping and the, and the girl said, oh, I've been at North Point for years and years and years. And I've led a small group for Inside Out, which meets at 4.30 in the afternoon, which means she's given up a lot of her time. And she said, I've been at North Point for years, but I just switched over to Decatur, to, uh, to Decatur City Church and I'm leading a small group at Decatur City Church. And I was just reminded of how extraordinary so many of you are as we've continued to create campuses around the Atlanta area, you've given up what was originally your home church to switch over when we've asked you to do that, switch services to be flexible. And for those of you, if this is your first time or your first time joining us online or at one of our campuses, you're just around some extraordinary, extraordinary people. And every single week, I'm reminded of that. And uh, yesterday, just again, Sandra and, I, and Sandra and I were like, there it is again, somebody who gets it, who's committed to what we're trying to do is we create environments, circles, which we think are better than rows, environments for people to connect with each other, and especially this generation of students. So I just wanna say thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, uh, we're in uh, the middle of a series that we've called the In Commandments. And if you missed the first couple of installments, if you go to incommandments.org, you can catch up. And I encourage you to do this. If you're in a small group, you can download a PDF. There are questions for you to discuss this content. It also will help some of the uh, members of your small group who skip church every once in a while. It'll force them to watch so they'll know how to participate in the conversation. But this, this series kind of picks up where Easter left off. Because Jesus announced, when Jesus showed up on the planet, he announced that he was establishing a brand new kind of relationship between God and man. He called it a brand new covenant. He said he's gonna launch something brand new. He launched the church. He said, I'm giving you a new command that you love one another, but you love one another the way that I've loved you. He made a lot of claims about himself and then he was crucified. And from the standpoint of his earliest first century followers, that was game over because the son of man can't be crucified, the son of God can't be crucified, the Messiah can't be crucified, the resurrection and the life can't be crucified. So when Jesus died, everything died with him. And then he rose from the dead, which punctuated everything he taught and punctuated everything he claimed about himself. Then he gathered them together and he said, now I want you to go into all the world and I want you to teach people to observe or obey. I want you to teach people to observe everything I've commanded you. And then he left. And they were left with what we're kind of calling a resurrection religion. Now, these were Gentiles. I mean, these were Jewish people originally, but this message was to go to Gentiles. And us Gentiles didn't have an Old Testament, and us Gentiles didn't appreciate the Old Testament. And Jesus said, yet I want you to take what I've taught you to all the world, to all the Gentiles. And they just didn't have a lot to go on. They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have the Gospels. The Apostle Paul wasn't even a Christian yet. Most of what we read, in, in fact, all of what we read in the New Testament, none of it had been written yet. And yet the church began and the church grew and the church gained momentum. So what we're doing, and, and all they really had to go on was this odd assortment of commands that we're talking about in this series, some parables, some stories of miracles, and yet no Bible. Again, the apostle Paul wouldn't start writing the things that showed up in our New Testament for 25, 35, or even 40, some people say 40 years later. So we're calling this series the End Commandments because we're looking at five things that Jesus said not to do. Because he told his followers, I want you to take all of my commands into the world, teach people to do what I've commanded you to do, and 
and Jesus commanded us not to do five things. So we're kind of stepping back in time and asking the question, what would it look like to be a Jesus follower before there was a Bible? What would it look like to be the G a Jesus follower when all you had was this sort of strange assortment of commands? And the reason they were so strange is because they were things like things that you can't really command. Like he said, fear not. Like, how do you do that or not do that? Doubt not. Just stop it. Well, I have a doubt. Well, stop it. Don't doubt. Can you even do that? How about this one? We'll get to this one. Worry not. Worry not. Stop worrying. Anybody ever told you to stop worrying? You're like, okay, thanks for telling me that. It's all over now that you told me that. Stop worrying. I mean, can you really fear not? Can you really doubt not? Can you really worry not? So we're looking at some of these not commands because they were so unrealistic that I don't even think they'd try. In fact, we know from the, you know, from the gospels, his followers, they didn't understand it until after the resurrection and they realized after the resurrection, it is actually possible to fear not, to doubt not, to worry not, and the two other knots that we're gonna talk about in this series, one of them today. Now, today's knot is a big, big knot. In fact, today's knot, if I were to tell you what it is up front, you would think, Andy, once again, that's just impossible. So I wanna tell you the story where this knot comes from and to fully understand the emotion because this is a very, very emotional encounter between Jesus and some people. To understand the emotion of this encounter because I would bet 90% of you have heard this story before. In fact, as soon as we begin, your mind will rush to the end. So try to stay with me in the emotion of the story. But to understand why this is such a big, big deal, you have to understand where it happened. Context is everything. The story takes place on what we call in our modern times, the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount was where this temple of the Jewish temple um, stood at the, um, in the first century. Now, this is a modern picture of it. Here's the, the south wall, west wall, goes all the way around. Currently on the Temple Mount, there are three structures. There's the Dome of the Rock, there's the Dome of the Chain, and there's a mosque. But this is both, so this is both a Jewish and Muslim holy site. The Jews stand around the, the wall where they feel like it was one of the original walls, and they that's the wailing wall. You've heard about that. Meanwhile, Muslims gather on the top and have worship. So it's a very, very um, debated and contentious site in modern day history. But in Jesus' time, in Jesus' time, in the first century, this was the epicenter of God's activity. This was the epicenter of God's presence because on this 30 plus acre site, it's about 30 acres on this 30 plus acre site, there was another building surrounded by walls called the holy place where the holy of holies was, the, um, the original supposed, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Ten Commandments, all of that was there. There was a big court all the way, almost all the way around that was the court of the Gentiles. Then you went through another gate that was the court of women or the women's court. Then you went through another gate and there was this huge altar where they sacrificed animals. And over to the right, there was this huge area where they actually butchered the animals. And then there was the entrance into the Holy of Holies. So this was, this was a loud place. It was somewhat of a smelly place, but it was the holiest site of, for all ancient Judaism. And this is where the story I'm about to read you takes place and the context is what, what brings extraordinary emotion. Extraordinary emotion. Now, the other thing that's cool is right here on the southern, this, this wall across the southern side of the, of the Temple Mount, Mount is about 900 plus feet long. But at the southern, right about here in the middle, they have excavated what they call the southern stairs. We're gonna show you another picture. The southern stairs actually was a staircase that was about 240 feet wide and the steps were a little bit you know, higher than what is comfortable for the average person that led up to this gate where you would enter 
the temple. Now this was a significant place for Jewish worshipers in the first century because this, this was the path to atonement. This was the path or this was the stairway, essentially this was their stairway to heaven, okay? This was their stairway to reconciliation. This was their stairway to forgiveness. Um, week after week, month after month, year after year, Jewish people, people would climb these stairs, they would enter the temple with their animal, with their sacrifice, with their pigeons, with their grain offering, they would bring their sin with them, they would leave their sin at the altar, and then they would descend these steps free of guilt with their relationship with God restored. And that's what makes this account between Jesus and these people that confront him so significant. Because the odds are everyone in this story entered the temple up these stairs through these gates. So you got it? This is the epicenter of Jewish activity, the epicenter of holiness. This is where God resides. This is the place of all places. Any questions? Okay, so here's, here's what happens. Okay, John chapter eight, if you wanna follow along in your Bibles or if you have version, or if you have it on some sort of device, John chapter eight, I'll read you the story. We'll creep through this together, okay? Early in the morning, which is important for this story, Early in the morning, which means the sun was just rising or perhaps the sun had not even risen yet. Early in the morning, Jesus came again, because this was his habit, into the temple, which meant he probably climbed these southern steps, walked through that gate, into the temple, into the court of Gentiles, this massive, multi-acre, flat, you know, sort of deserted, probably that early in the morning, piece of um, real estate. As you can see from the picture, there were, there were trees that grew up on the Temple Mount. There were probably trees growing at that time as well. And all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. So these people, everywhere Jesus went, as we said, there are crowds. So Jesus, the sun is barely up and they're already looking for Jesus. And they've heard Jesus is arriving at the temple. Jesus is going to the temple. So all these people follow Jesus around people. Up the stairs they go, stair by stair. Jesus finds probably a shady place on the temple um, mount. He sits down and the people gather around and Jesus begins to teach early in the morning. Okay, you got it? Story continues. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, pause. The part of this story that I think we miss sometimes is this was very early in the morning and we need to ask the question, where were these scribes and Pharisees and where was this woman all night long? And the answer to the question is, when they caught her in adultery, the issue wasn't what do we do with the woman, the issue was this is a perfect opportunity to trap Jesus. So they kept this woman all night long somewhere when they heard that Jesus had made it safely onto the Temple Mount and was seated with an audience around him, then picture this, they dragged this woman from wherever they found her through the city, up the stairs, through the gate, into the court of Gentiles, to the holy of holies in order to make their point. A woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, the court of the Gentiles. It's this massive, massive area as you saw from the picture. This is going to be a public spectacle and they want it to be a public spectacle on purpose because they have an agenda. And the agenda is not the welfare of the woman. Teacher, they said. Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. As in, remember, thou shalt not commit adultery, Exodus 20, 14. 
This isn't some peripheral law. This is one of the top, how many? 10, that's right, thank you. This is one of the top 10. This is, in fact, this is one of the only top 10 that people remember. So what are the 10 commandments? You know, what are, which 10 commandments do you remember? I think thou shalt not lie and thou shalt not commit adultery. That's about it, but I know there's eight more. So this is like one of the top two of the top 10. And this woman, it's not a rumor. She was caught in the act of adultery and we saved her up for this moment and we have served her up for this moment moment and the crowd is quiet and a larger crowd no doubt begins to gather because they've seen these men in their robes and in all of their you know signs of authority drag a woman up the stairs and now this woman is the in the last place she wants to be now some of you can relate to this because you're in church today <laughs> and you're uncomfortable and you're only here because somebody promised you lunch or they already fed you breakfast or they said you're gonna meet somebody cute. You know, you don't know why you're here, but this is not your place. And you've been nervous the whole time. So you can relate to a Bible character. We are not your people. This is not your spot. These are not her people. And the only, and she's a Jewish woman. She's been to the temple many times, but every time she came before, she went up those steps bringing a sacrifice for her sin. And now it looks like she will be sacrificed for her sin. And she can view over that low wall, the top of the holy place. She is as close as she will ever get perhaps to the holy of holies. And if she was not aware of her sin before, she is overwhelmed with her sin and her guilt now. Can you feel a little bit of this drama? Now in the law, they say to Jesus, because they're gonna explain the law to Jesus. Now in the law, pause, and by the way, Jesus, it's no accident that we're where we are. It's no accident that we set you up to be where you are for this moment. In the law, and by the way, Jesus, be careful what you say, because if you're not careful, we will take you around the corner into the women's court through the Nicandor gate by the temple, by, by the altar and beside the slaughterhouse, and we can take you into the Holy of Holies or right outside of it, and we could actually, if we needed to, show you the original document. So be careful what you say, Jesus. Now, in the law, which is right over there, Moses, who's the guy, you know, he's the ultimate authority. Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And I'm telling you, you could have heard a hush throughout the, the uh, plaza of the Gentiles. The only sounds you would hear possibly if they'd started that early in the morning was dying animals the slaughter of animals on the other side of the wall where the altar stood. Jesus could have said, well, stoner, why'd you drag her all the way up here if you're so sure of her guilt? Why did you drag her all the way up here if you know what the law says and if you know what Moses commands? And if Jesus had had some of our sense of humor, he might have said, and by the way, God squad, what Moses actually wrote was the following. If a man, oh, who's missing from this picture? Oh, never mind. If a man commits adultery, according to Leviticus, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. But once again, what do we have? We have sacred men, in their sacred place 
with their specialized interpretation of the sacred text in order to manipulate the sacred followers. They were saying this, as if we didn't know by now, they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him, because their goal was always to divide people from, to divide Jesus from the people, to divide Jesus from the people. And now they have a crowd, now they're in the perfect spot, now they have the perfect opportunity to divide Jesus from the people, because if Jesus sides against Moses, if Jesus sides against the law, and if Jesus sides against the temple, then he will certainly lose his popularity with the people. It was their way of thinking, we've had some pretty lame approaches to trying to trap you. We've done some pretty dumb stuff when it comes to trying to expose you, Jesus, but we've got you this time. Let's not forget where we are. They had planned this so carefully. Because now, on trial, publicly, it's Jesus versus Moses. It's Jesus versus the temple. It's Jesus versus their Bible the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets. So Jesus, are you greater than Moses? Jesus, are you greater than the law? Jesus, do you have more authority than the temple? And no, Jesus, we really have very little concern for the woman. I'm telling you, as dramatic as I will try to make this sound, we have no idea the drama and how thick the emotion was early that morning as Jesus stood and viewed this poor woman that was simply a means to their end, knowing that his, perhaps his future, his popularity hung in the balance as he came up with an answer to this question. This may have been one of those moments, the scriptures don't tell us, this may have been one of those moments when Peter and Andrew and James and John are kind of backing out to the periphery thinking, this may not go so well. This is one of those moments we may be about to lose the crowd. If they take him, they're gonna take us. Perhaps we should step back to the gate. No, ma'am, you go ahead, ma'am. You get up close to the front. You don't wanna miss this. This is, this is gonna be good. John, you writing this down? <laughs> Remember what happened next? Do you see the picture? There they are. They're so right. Jesus is stuck. They're on the temple. Mount. I mean, they're, they're where all the action has happened. This is, this is the place. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and with his finger wrote on the ground. I don't know if this was lost on his audience and I don't know if I'm reading too much into this. So don't take this for more than it's worth. But when I read this, I see that it's even more than, you know, Jesus versus Moses and Jesus versus the law and Jesus versus the Old Testament. Now you have the finger of Jesus versus the finger of God. Because the old, the first century, um, the ancient Jews and the leaders of Judaism in the first century and many Orthodox Jews today, they believed that the law of God was originally written with the finger of God, that he etched the law into tablets of stone, gave those to Moses, he came down off the mountain, and this was to be the context, this was to be the rules, the laws for all of the Jews. And it was written by, with the finger of God. And now Jesus Jesus is on the Temple Mount, etching in the sand with his own finger. And everybody waited, and everybody waited. But the accusers got amped up, kept amped up, it got louder and louder, and the text says, but 
when they persisted. In other words, it's coming. Jesus, you have to give us an answer. Give us an answer. Give us an answer. And the longer he waited and the more silent he was, and the longer he waited, the more silent he was, the more sure they were they had him, they had trapped him, and he would not have an answer. But Jesus simply gave them time to expose their hearts to the people around them. And apparently he gave them time to expose their hearts to themselves. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up, stood back up, and he said to them, remember this? He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He who is without sin among you guys, let's not forget where we are standing. He who is without sin among you, gentlemen, how many times have you climbed these stairs to this mount to enter that gate to make sacrifice for your own sin? He who is without sin among you, Let him be the first to cast a stone at her. And suddenly, the environment, suddenly, the real estate, suddenly, the context for this conversation comes tumbling in on top of them because they are standing on the very place, they are standing in the very place that is most reminiscent of their failure personally. It brings to mind all of their sin because this is where they have traveled since they were children, since they were little boys, to leave a sacrifice for their personal sin in order to leave reconciled to God. And Jesus infers, gentlemen, let's not forget where we're standing. He who is among you who does not not sin and has not sinned and has no sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. And here's, here's the amazing thing about the drama. There was one among them who had no sin. And he was the only one who had no stone. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, Preachers, pastors, theologians, scholars, people who just care about these things for 2,000 years have wondered, what did Jesus write in the dirt, right? What was he doing? What was he doing down there? And based on some research that we did as a staff, we found out what he was writing and we grabbed this picture. Maybe not. The text goes on to tell us that this is what happened next. When they, when they heard it, when they heard him say, he who is among you who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. When they heard this, and when whatever came to their mind came to their mind, and when the context of the situation finally, it finally dawned on them where they were and what they were about to do, and how unworthy they were to do what they were about to do, and perhaps how many times they knew they deserved to be stoned for their own sin. 
when it finally dawned on them, when their self-righteousness, which Jesus despised, in fact, the only sin that Jesus seemed to ever go ballistic over was the sin of self-righteousness. When their self-righteousness began to subside and they began to see clearly, when they heard it, they began to go out. Now, before you knew where this story took place, this didn't even make any sense. What did they go out of? Imagine this. They didn't just leave. They goed out. They left the temple. They exited the gate. They walked down the stairs and they walked away from what they considered to be the epicenter of God's activity and God's presence on the earth. And the text tells us that they went out in a certain order, beginning with the older ones, the ones that had made the most trips to the temple to sacrifice for their own sin. And he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. Sitting... (laughs) with the Lamb of God, in the temple of God, with the sound of dying sheep in the background. But she didn't know. Can you imagine this? Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, I think he had a big grin on his face. Where did they go? Where are they? What happened here? Apparently they left. And then he asked her a very important question. Did no one condemn you? Now this question doesn't mean, did no one accuse you? Because she'd been accused. This question doesn't mean, are you guilty? Because she basically had admitted her guilt. The question really means, is there no one here forcing you to pay for what you've done? Is there no one here condemning you? Is there no one left to force you to pay for what you've done? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, are you ready for this? Because for some of you today, this is what you came for right here. For some of you today, who are, you're so uncomfortable, it's been a long time. For some of you today, You're here because you think somehow being here is gonna counterbalance what happened last night. That you hadn't even been home yet. You just came straight to church. You sat outside the door thinking, I can't even go home. I I gotta gotta somehow, plus I'll be able to call my mama and say, guess what I did this morning? And your mom will say, yeah, did you even go home? You know, anyway, so this, this this is what you're here for. I understand this. We all understand this. Because every single one of us, me included, have been in a place in our lives where this is what we needed to hear and we weren't sure we would ever hear it. And even when we hear it, we're not sure we believe it. And Jesus said to her, I do not condemn you either. I will not force you to pay for what you've done. And in saying this, Jesus announced to those who were there and those who would read this account afterwards, Jesus announced, I am greater 
than Moses. And I am greater than the law. And I am greater than the entire temple system. I'm greater than the sacrificial system. I'm greater than the Old Testament. And we would learn later that he came to replace all of it. And then he gives her the commandment. Go. And from now on, sin, no more. Go, you're free to go. But from now on, sin, no more. You're free to go. But from now on, sin, no more. Today's not command that seems so unrealistic pre-cross and pre-resurrection is actually an invitation to every single man, woman, and child, but it comes with a different tone than perhaps you're accustomed to. And the not command is simply sin not. And this is the tone of Jesus. This is the tone of Jesus towards sinners who not only have sinned, but who were caught and who've admitted their sin. And this may not be the tone that you grew up with at your church. It may not have been maybe the tone of your pastor. It may not be the tone of your father or the tone of your mother. It may not be the tone of other Christians that you've met. It may not be the tone of your neighbor who's a Christian. It may not be the tone of your brother-in-law or sister-in-law who's a Christian. It may not be the tone you've picked up on television as preachers rant and rave about all kinds of different stuff. But in this moment, Jesus exposes to us his heart towards sinners. And his tone was not condemning. It was his tone was all about compassion. He urged, he did not condemn. He urged, he did not condemn. He says, I want to urge you, leave your life of sin. Sin, not. Because Jesus knew what you know. And Jesus knew what I know. And Jesus knew what all of us discover eventually. That every sin, every sin comes prepackaged with a penalty. That every sin comes prepackaged with a penalty. I don't know if you've thought of it in these terms or not, but every sin comes prepackaged with a a penalty. Every time you sin, something dies. Sin kills things. Sin, over time, will kill your conscience. You know that. There are things that that don't even bother you that used to bother you, and there's something in you that says, that should bother me. Sin will ultimately kill your mind. Sin will ultimately kill your body. Sin will ultimately, come on, it'll kill your self-respect. It'll kill your relationships. Sin for some of you has killed a family. It's killed a marriage. It's killed a relationship between you and your father, between you and one of your children. Sin will kill your self-control. Sin has the power to kill an entire culture. And so Jesus urges her, sin not, leave your life of sin. I don't need to punish you. I don't need to condemn you because your sin has already punished you. Your sin has already hurt you. Your sin has just killed your reputation in this community. So leave your life of sin. We have to believe that it's the consequences. It's the consequences of sin. That's the reason Jesus urges her to leave her life of sin. Now listen to this. 
And the temple model, the message of the temple model is when you sin, you break God's law. The message of the Jesus model is this. When you sin, you break God's heart because God knows sin will eventually break you. So sin no more. Leave your life of sin. The consequences of sin is the reason Jesus urges you to leave your life of sin. And here's the amazing thing. A little while later, a little while, look up here, a little while later, Jesus would die for her adultery. And he would die for your adultery. And he would die for all of her sin. And he would die for all of your sin. And the reason we know the tone is one of urging rather than condemning is this. When someone is willing to die for you, you never have to question where you stand with them. When someone is willing to give their life for you, you never have to wonder, where do I stand with him? And Jesus knew that he was about to replace the entire temple system. He was about to shed his own blood for her sin. And so he urged her, sin not. Leave your life of sin. Sin not. Not because God will get you, but because sin will kill you. Not because God will get you, but because Jesus died for you, because his father loves you. So here's an awkward question. What's your sin? What's your sin? What's your sin? Today, the knot is leave your life of sin. Sin not. Not because God's gonna get you. Not because the Bible says so. But because sin will kill you. And Jesus was already killed for your sin. So why would you continue in anything that's going to hurt you when your heavenly father who loves you and paid the ultimate penalty for your sin urges you, begs you to walk away from your sin? What is your sin? And I know what you'll say. I've been doing this a long time. It's Andy, well, it's not that easy. Now listen, of course it's not that easy. That's the nature of sin. This is why Jesus urges you not to sin. Of course it's not that easy because it's far easier to get entangled than untangled. It's so much easier to get entangled than untangled. And this is why Jesus urges you and why he urged her and why he urged people through the ages, through this text, through the scriptures, and through those who have taught these texts. Leave your life of sin, not because God's gonna get you, because sin is already getting you. Not because God's gonna punish you, but come on, sin is already punishing you. So what's your sin? Come on, just think about it. Nobody can read your mind. What's your sin? Leave it. Pour it out. Throw it away. Pack up and go back. Or pack up and move out. Call your mom and tell her. Call your dad and tell her. 
Tell your wife, tell your husband, confess it. Leave your life of sin. It is killing you. And your heavenly father who loves you and you never have to doubt his love because his son gave his life for you. He begs you, leave your life of sin. Interesting thing. If you ever go to Jerusalem and if you ever visit the Temple Mount, which you have to visit it. And if you ever visit the Southern Steps, here's what you're gonna find. At the top of that magnificent set of stairs, that magnificent staircase, at the top of the stairs, you'll come to the entrance to the temple. And it's been walled up. You can't enter there anymore. And because of something that happened within walking distance of that very spot, you don't have to because your sin has been paid for. As Philip Yancey says, God took an incredible risk by announcing your forgiveness ahead of time. And so your heavenly father who loves you and whose love you can never doubt urges you, begs you, sin not, sin not, Sin not, leave your life of sin. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, every single one of us in this room knows exactly where this message lands. And Father, many of us have resisted messages like this because of the tone because we felt like somebody had an agenda, because somebody wanted to count us. But Father, I pray that if we hear anything and sense anything, it's the urging of a savior who gave his life for us, that knows our hearts and knows our minds and knows our habit and knows our pain and knows our fear and knows how entangled we've become and knows how hopeless it seems and knows how the, the regret is gonna catch up with us once we walk away and swallow us whole. Father, I pray that we would hear from the voice of Jesus, leave your life of sin, leave your life of sin, and that you give each of us the wisdom to know what to do, and then the courage to actually do it today. That we would be sincere followers of Jesus, because you've invited us away from the very thing that is killing us. So Father, give us courage. Give us a next step. Lead us away from the sin for which you died. In your son's name, we pray these things. Amen.